asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, so whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Hala talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well, what better way to test the waters? While you are away, your home could also earn extra income. That's right. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling, because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You could just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today we're talking about being a small but mighty real estate investor with Chad Carson. Right, we are so pumped to be talking with our friend Chad Carson, aka Coach Carson, which is also uh, his site, CoachCarson.com. Holdover from Chad's Clemson football playing days. So one of my earliest memories was hanging out with Chad in the pool at FinCon <laughs> nearly five years ago. We're talking real estate. We were enjoying a craft beer. And here we are at it again. But just because this this feels like a more ca uh, casual conversation to us, that does not mean that Chad isn't going to bring the goods. We, Joel, you and I, we tout ta the merits of small-time real estate investing. Uh, but Chad has made it his mission. And it's the focus of his new book, The Small and Mighty Real Estate Investor. So if you're wondering how owning a few investment properties, how that could get you closer to financial freedom, well, keep listening. If you're wondering if it's even possible to get into real estate, given where mortgage rates are currently, this episode is for you. Chad, thank you so much for talking with us today here on the podcast. Matt, Joel, it is great to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, Chad, you're welcome anytime. Like uh, next week also. So we'll bring you back <laughs> on again. Yeah. Let's do uh, it. There's, I mean, there really is a lot to cover. We probably could have multiple episodes with you just because the, the book is so thorough. But the first question we ask anybody who comes on the show is, what do you like to splurge on? It lets us know a little bit about you and your priorities. But Matt and I, we, of course, have the, the big priority of spending more on craft beer. What is, what's that in your life? That was one of the first things I resonated with you guys on, both listening to you and also meeting you is, yeah, food and craft beer. Are, like, my wife and I, we like to combine that with travel. I guess that would be my like, kind of cheat answer that we, we like, my, my wife and I, when we first met on our first date, it was like, where are we going to go? <laughs> where are we going to travel? And <laughs> nice. so fr from there, though, I think just not, you know, on a, on a car, we drive a toy, an old Toyota, we drive old, you know, 
hand-me-down cars from family members. That's that's okay with us. But going to really nice locations, having good food, like in Spain or Greece, or mm. that's that's just that's the best. Like we we really <laughs> we really enjoy that. And then having a good craft beer is is right up there with it as well. Okay, so I was detailing my first date with my wife recently to one of my kids, and I ended up taking my wife. We went to uh, to the zoo and to a baseball game, which is like a really, really long date, right? Um, yeah. and, but but you, I feel like you blew me out. Of, you guys were talking about going on trips together on your first date, like six well, months from now. That sounds intense, intense Chad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it, we were out hiking, and we were like, "Well, what do you like to do? Like, what, what what are you up to?" And it was just like one thing after another. She's like, "Well, I traveled to Guatemala. I speak Spanish. She's a Spanish teacher, by the way. And for me, I was." I was kind of itching to travel because I played football in college and I did a little bit of study abroad, but I was just like, I never got to do enough of it. So I was just really intrigued by that. And it's like, well, that's exactly what I want to do. I would love to go to Latin America. I would love to learn Spanish. She's like, well, I'm a Spanish teacher. I was like, well, perfect. You can give me lessons. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) More time together. I guess we'll go ahead and get married. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. Uh, well, on that note, so you just got back from another year abroad. What made you go specifically to Spain? Can you share some about that trip? How the heck was it? Yeah, well, I mentioned the Spanish language. That's sort of something that we connect with. We've lived in Ecuador in the past for about a year and a half with our kids. So that was an amazing experience. We love Ecuador. We love South America. We wanted to try something in Europe where we could be a little closer. We, we kind of had this vision of my kids were 10 and 8 when we left. And actually, a little bit, 11 and 9. I can't get that right. But we I wanted to take them to historical sites. And Europe is just so dense with so many different places. And so like we went from Spain was our home base. They went to school there. They they were speaking Spanish in school, which was amazing. We were in a small community in Granada in the southern part of Spain. and But then we also took side trips. So we went to Greece in February and went to see like the, the Parthenon and all these old sites. And uh, that, was, that was like a history lesson in person. Yeah, that diversity of just experience, history, stories, just was, I think all of that together was, was an amazing experience. Talk to us about the the logistics and the finances of pulling off a big stunt like this. What sticks out in your mind as kind of the the biggest barriers, the biggest hurdles that you had to overcome to kind of pull off a year in a foreign country? Basically, this is like a mini retirement, right? Like a yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, when I first did this back in 2009, my wife and I didn't have kids at that point. We just had to save money. So like that's how we did it first time. We we went for four months. We saved the money. It was almost like saving for a car and just paying cash for a car. That's the way we looked at it. And instead of buying a new car, we spent 20,000 bucks on a trip and travel. This time around, you know, it was just a much different situation. We have rental income coming in from the United States. And so, you know, paying for all of our lifestyle expenses in Spain basically came from the distributions from our, our rental property partnership that I have back in the United States. And so the money, the money side of things was less challenging, although I know for a lot of people, that's going to be the biggest challenge, just getting the money. But the other big challenge, which is part of the story of why I wrote the Almighty Investor was that the time and the flexibility to be able to go for a year is probably the most difficult thing because you have obligations, you have to be in a certain location. And so for me and my, yeah, I have a rental property business and having property managers on the ground doing most of the day-to-day work. I have a college student rentals, so they were leasing properties for me while I was gone and me paying them to do that and having systems and processes, like all of that is, is something that's really important. But with a typical job, you can't do that. It's, it's a lot harder to do that. You mm-hmm. might have a you know digital nomad kind of is it's becoming more of a thing, but uh, being able to travel abroad is is more you know having the time and flexibility in addition to the money. And so those two things combined, I think, were the the biggest challenges. 
Yeah, yeah, that make that makes sense. And I kind of hinted at this when I said like the mini uh, mini retirements. But you are all about creating these awesome experiences just all along the way, not just saving the the best trips for retirement, right? <laughs> when you know yeah. when you're actually less able to actually enjoy it. Why is do more of what matters so core to to your philosophy and how you view life? Yeah, I feel like we, you know, everybody knows it's easy to quantify how to make money. Like you save money, it's not easy to do, but it's easy to quantify. You got you save a bank account, it's on your statement. Like it's pretty easy to measure. And even with time, like we, we know we want free time, but to me, like the, the good stuff, like as a parent right now with kids, like the good stuff are those small moments, those in between times, like picking my kids up from school and they tell me something that they might not have told me if I was busy working somewhere, or going on a trip and seeing their eyes light up when they're doing seeing something for the first time in Greece some big huge temple or just the small moments like just being present like doing what matters means it's totally different to different people it might be serving in your community it might mean taking care of a loved one like all these things which we know matter to us they do require money sometimes because we got to pay the bills we got to pay our mortgage payment so usually work and our time gets spent doing that but it most of all requires time it requires presence. And so for me, the, the small mighty investor idea is like you can go big and get huge and have all this, this money, but what if it takes away your time? What if it takes away your presence in doing those things that matter? Like why, why would you do that? Like what's, what's the point? Why not have like a more balanced approach where you make enough money because money's important, but you have like the, the ultimate currency, which is that time to, to do those things that you know are really the most important thing to you. Yeah, agreed. And all right, let's talk about real estate, Chad, because that's your book obviously is influenced about that ultimate desire to have more free time to do more of what matters. But specifically tell us why real estate, right? Why not uh, just continue to sock money into index funds and tax advantaged accounts? That's what a lot of personal finance uh, enthusiasts talk about. Like that's, that's the easy way real estate seems a little more difficult. Yeah, I mean, they're all good. I want to say that up front. Like, I, I like index funds. I like savings accounts. I like all that stuff, which is what's so cool about your show is that you you combine a lot of different tools and show how they all work. But I, I'll make the pitch for real estate investing if if this is something that somebody, if you're interested in it, because I think, I don't like to try to talk people into real estate because it's it's a kind of like, it's kind of like a startup business where on the front end, you've got to learn a lot. You've got to build relationships. You've got to invest some time and knowledge and, and energy into it. But on the back end, it can become a very passive, kind of like a blue chip stock type of investment. So that front end, that front loaded kind of investment of time and energy that was important to know. So like I don't, that's why I don't want to talk people into it. But if you're willing to put that energy and that effort and that money up front, real estate has this unique quality. And a friend of mine, Jillian Johnsrud, who you guys probably know as well, mm -hmm. she always says that real estate money, it spends differently in early retirement or in financial independence. It spends differently. So like think about if you had a million dollars or half a million dollars in a stock uh, investment account, or if you had a 401k, like taking your principal out of there to live off of that principal is just a different psychological decision than getting rental income that you that comes in every single month and you still have the property. Like you're not selling the property, yeah. but you get this rental income coming in. And I've experienced this firsthand because I'm, I'm living in Spain, we spend, 100% of the money some some months because we're traveling and doing all this stuff. And guess what? Like next month, another set of money comes in. 
and then another set of money. And, th and so that, that recurring income of real estate is a super important thing. And it's, it's more than just math, like the math's important too, but having recurring income that you can also get to be semi-passive. So I'm, it's not gonna be 100% passive, but I spend a couple hours per week now that my real estate investment portfolio is mature, I'm not buying and selling properties, I'm not remodeling properties. We're just managing the managers basically. And I say, if you have a few properties, that could be like 30 minutes a week, four hours a month. like. That's not that's not exaggeration. Like I've, I've surveyed a lot of people I know who had those kind of portfolios, and and so it could be a very passive while also producing that recurring income. Which when you want to live off your income, when you want to live off your wealth, uh, real estate investing gives you that ability to do it. In addition to all the other stuff you probably heard about of building wealth and you know, using leverage and having small amount of money down, like that's all true too. But then yeah. also real estate is a an amazing financial independence kind of core vehicle to help you get there and live off your income. Well, if we're talking about early financial independence, it's also not age restricted like some of those tax advantage retirement accounts are, right? Like Correct. if if you're putting it into a traditional 401k or IRA, you you're not you're not allowed to really touch that stuff without penalties until 59 and a half and so real estate it's like boom, you get to you get kind of that that recurring dividend on, you know, an ongoing basis. Yeah, and it also has tax advantages. It's not quite as good as like a Roth IRA or something like that, but you know you can grow in a tax advantage way using things like uh, depreciation, which shelters your income, so you don't pay quite as much in taxes as you would uh, if you just got the income without depreciation. You know, this is something that people even before re retirement accounts were around, like people have been using real estate and rental rental income as like a core retirement vehicle, as a core wealth building vehicle because of all these various benefits that it has. Yeah. In addition to the psychological win that comes with being able to sure. enjoy the the profit from the properties that that thing is shedding every single month, you know, we've talked about the small and the small and mighty approach with our listeners before. This is something we have adopted ourselves when it comes to how it is that we look at real estate. But for listeners out there who maybe haven't heard your philosophy, can you share specifically why going small? How it is that that can be the right choice for a lot of folks? Yeah, I'll tell it with a story. Like when I, when I first started real estate investing, I was 23 years old. I just graduated from college, and every every class I went to, and I'm kind of dating myself now. So it was 21 years ago. Like I was listening to like CDs back in the car, like riding around. You know, <laughs> that's how we but, did it back in the day. Yeah, right. back, in, back in the <laughs> tapes before that. I was also listening to tapes. But uh, anyway, uh, I was listening to these, and the, the ethos or the main message you got most of the time was, "Hey, you should get bigger and bigger and bigger, and you should grow faster and faster and faster." In fact the most successful people are the people who get the biggest and grow the fastest. That's just, the, it's just sort of an unwritten assumption. And so I, I sort of bought into that. And my business partner and I, during the first three, four, five years, were on that track. We were trying to get bigger, buy a lot of properties. But the, the end result of that was, number one, we hit the 2007, 8, 9 recession. And that was pretty scary, you know, having to try to, oh, yeah. try to survive that when you've grown fast and you have a lot of leverage. Uh, so that was one problem is that there's a, there's a risk of growing fast. But then the other thing we realized, going back to that conversation about time, is that a, a smaller, simpler, slower, like a, I call it like a tortoise-like real estate investing strategy, is actually super effective too. And it also gives you more of that time and flexibility that we talked about, where if you're constantly always growing, always growing, always growing, and I'm not saying you shouldn't push it and work hard and do those kinds of things, but if you don't, if you never take a break, like I look at it like climbing a mountain, like if you're always climbing and you never take like some plateaus to take a break and take a breath and, and relax, then you're gonna not enjoy the process. You're not gonna enjoy the reason you're investing in the first place. You're gonna not miss those opportunities with your family, with your friends. And so I, 
we, we realized in that moment what we, we started writing down like in 2007 when we were in the kind of the eye of the hurricane we were like all right what is it we got into investing in real estate for like why are we doing this we bought like dozens and dozens of properties in the la- in the last year and we wrote down things like I wanted to travel like I you know with my future wife who I had just met I wanted to uh, be present with with friends I wanted to play basketball in the middle of the day I wanted to go hiking because we lived in Clemson we lived in Clemson South Carolina near a bunch of the foothills of the mountains so the things I wrote down on my list, some of them required money, like travel requires some money, but the biggest impediment to me doing the things that I wanted to do in my life was free time and flexibility. And that was such an aha moment. I was like, all right, <laughs> we need to build a real estate investing philosophy, a business that works it backwards from those lifestyle things that, that the reason we're doing in the first place so that we don't miss out on the, the whole benefit of why we even started this in the first place. And that the, I didn't call it that at the, at the time, but the end result was having a leaner, slower business. And the, the, the more I got into it, the more I studied people who have done this. I met people who had five properties who were the most relaxed uh, people in, in, enjoying life I've ever seen in my life or people with yeah. 10 properties and they, they make enough money, but they don't have the, the kind of the weight and the, uh, all the, the, the struggle and the stress of going big. And it just it, made, it inspired me to try to do that with our, with our own business and help other people do it as well. Yeah, well, there's a focus there where you're optimizing for life as opposed to optimizing your real estate, like optimizing your portfolio. And we're, I mean, I'm going to side with optimizing for life every single time. Yeah, and you're working back from what matters to you, and then you're saying, "Cool, how do I fund that lifestyle? How do I achieve that?" Yeah, and and so many people are doing are doing the opposite, or they just haven't thought enough about what they want their life to look like, and so they're like, "Well, I guess real estate is the ticket to wealth," and then so they keep pursuing that, and they go so dang hard that they they're missing out on the benefits. that real estate could afford. You actually, in your book, you highlight three different couples and you're like, this this couple is making just plenty of money from their real estate portfolio, but they've got the flexibility to go along with it. Whereas somebody else might have you know, a thousand units. They've got this job, this this thing they've got to get back to. Do you want to kind of like uh, talk about those those couples and, and, and that kind of scenario you set up in your book and, and how you think about it? Yeah, the, the the story was I'll simplify it a little bit. There's a story, there's a couple Liz and Tom. They they live in St. Louis, Missouri. They could be anywhere in the United States, right? But they they had this simple ten property portfolio. And 15 years after they started, they bought these properties like in the first five or six years, and then they worked on paying them off. Like they actually paid off the debt on their properties, and they owned ten single family houses, free and clear. And the, just to kind of simplify the numbers, when they paid all of their expenses like taxes, insurance, maintenance, all that stuff, they had no mortgage payment anymore and they made $1,000 per property or $10,000 per month. So $10,000 per month, like think about what you can do with $10,000 a month. And if that's not sure. your number, maybe you only need $5,000 or $15,000, whatever your number is. But the point was like 10 properties produced $10,000 per month and it was, they were paid off and they were friends with another couple who had kind of got a different path, which is sort of the traditional path these days. If you listen to real estate investor, you know, people talking about it, they went and they got big because they were so good at real estate investing that they said, why should I just stop at my own properties? Like I could go partner with other people and raise money and they bought thousands of units with a bunch of other people's money. But the reality of the situation in this story was they were taking a trip together and the couple who had all the thousands of units, they had to go back to the United States. They couldn't extend their trip because they had remodel projects going on. They had a team, you know, one of their team members like quit and they had to go try to replace that person. And so on paper, it looked like they had systems and team and supposedly it was passive. But when you have this big operation with lots of people and lots of things going on, it's like a machine. There's always 
something breaking and there's yeah. always something you got to put your attention on. And so what, what I advocate for, what I think this story shows is it's kind of like time management. Like you could try to manage your time by doing like hundreds of things and having like organizers and to-do lists and all that stuff. And you could try to you know, systematize all that. You know, that's that's one way to do it. Or you could just do less stuff. Like you could just not do as many things every day and your life would be a lot simpler. And real estate investing is the same way. Like you got to find a happy medium where, yeah, you got to get enough properties to pay your to pay the uh, your your goals, like pay for things to build enough wealth. But there, there's a happy medium in there, and I think the small and mighty model says you know you could get to five properties, ten properties, twenty properties. You you could get bigger if you want, depending on how what your goals are. But instead of using the, the cash to continue getting more and more and more, eventually you you reach this stage, which I call in the book the ender stage, where you've built enough wealth to start actually plowing the money back and to use a poker metaphor like to start taking some chips off the table and actually paying off some debt and simplifying your life and you don't have to pay off all your properties but like actually paying off debt's kind of sacrilegious in the real estate world like people yeah. people don't talk about that they, oh you can't pay debt off like what are you talking about that's not you can't the only Dave Ramsey does that it's like no no you can actually <laughs> you, you, you can you can do it too like it's actually a reasonable thing to do well, we want to talk more about that, how you sold some properties. We want to talk about some of the other factors you consider when you are looking at properties and how we should be responding to rising interest rates as well. We will get to all of that right after this. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. They are committed to high ethical standards and even had to pass a rigorous exam before they could become a CFP professional. They offer financial planning and services that take a more comprehensive view of your financial and personal circumstances and are customized for your needs. Certified financial planner professionals can offer advice on a wide range of issues like reviewing your investment portfolio's allocation, handling an inheritance, rolling over a company retirement plan, building education savings, and so much more. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. 
Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no-obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. All right, we're back from the break. We're still talking with our, our good friend, Chad Carson, about real estate investing, but kind of the taking the, a, a different approach than most people advocate for these days. And Chad, can you actually maybe hop in the time machine a little bit? You were talking about when you used to listen to tapes, so maybe your brain is already there. <laughs> um, but about how you got into real estate in the first place. Cause you, and, and you actually made a, a quick pivot in the beginning. House hacking is part of that story. I'll, I'd love for you to tell our listeners about that. Yeah, I was listening to tapes, that's true. And I, I was it was back when I was 23 years old, but I, I graduated from college. I was a biology major. I thought I was going to go to med school. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to take a break for a year or two and just do this like entrepreneurship thing. And I actually started trying to flip houses. So you know, in real estate, you could have the rental property business, which is what I do now, and a lot of people do. And you can do this part-time on the side. Whereas what I was doing was going out looking for deals, finding fixer-upper properties, foreclosures. I would try to get them at a really low price. And then my business partner and I would flip them, either fixing them up and selling them or just reselling them to another investor. So that's how I put food on the table. Like that was my job. And once I started doing that for a year, I kind of forgot about med school and said, eh, I'm just going to do this own th- do this thing on my own. And <laughs> I don't want to go the traditional path anymore. I'll make um, more money than a doctor anyway. Yeah, well, maybe not. I, I don't think I, I, <laughs> I think I would have made more money. I, I didn't I didn't do that well, but I, I, I've survived and I had a lot of fun and I played pickup basketball in the middle of the day. So that, I met my goals. There but you go. but yeah. I also you know, in the early years, like anytime you start something new, like your housing expense is is a big deal. And and so I quickly learned that I, I about the strategy where you can move into a property and rent out part of the property that you live in called house hacking today. And I, I lived I actually bought a fourplex and I'm in a college town, Clemson. And so you have these little small multifamily properties and this one happened to be pretty close to Clemson's campus. And so but it was a it was a major fixer upper. Like in fact I showed up the property was vacant and it had Merry Christmas spray painted across the front of the whole building <laughs> like somebody like tagged it in the middle of the night and I walked in I walked into unit four and there was an outline of a chalk outline of a body in unit number four and I'm like okay I don't know that I can do this wow. and uh, <laughs> but my uh, I had a mentor luckily who's like no no that's perfect it's that's, that's exactly what you want you know you want it to look horrible that nobody else wants this property and I said all right I guess I'll do this and and so I, I fixed that property up I, I had to borrow money to do it but I, li- I moved into unit number two and I rented all, all the other three units out. And my expenses, principal, interest, taxes, insurance, and a little bit of my maintenance was covered 100% by the other three Boom. units. And so there we go. Number was, one I, monthly expense covered. Yeah. Covered, yeah. And I still had my old Toyota that I drove for like many years after that. So like I was living lean, 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 very cheap, which allowed me to stay as an entrepreneur because it got rough. You know, it got rough. So I had a roller coaster. I'd do really well for a month and I'd lose money the next month. And that helped me kind of sustain that journey of not having to go back to a regular job. And But anyone can use that. Like house hacking is amazing. I feel like it's the, if, if you're willing to do it, there's so many variations of that, but especially 
early in your career, um, you can use that as a kind of jumping off point into rental properties because you can move into the house with a smaller down payment. You can use it, get a long-term loan because it's an owner-occupant property and you can learn how to be a landlord. You can learn how to do it. If you make some mistakes, not a big deal. You're right there. And it was where I sort of learned how to do it and realized I could be a, a rental landlord. And we still own that property. That property that we bought, nice. it was worth 130 or 150,000 when we bought it. Now it's 250, 300,000 bucks, you know? So it's, it's done well and it's making income and it's still, we, we started doing a bunch more of those after that. Yeah, that's what I love, love about house hacking is that it addressed, like at the core of that is, are you willing to do something that most folks aren't willing to do in order to get ahead financially? Yeah. It's, it's just an alternative way of living and to a certain extent, that's what it is. That's what it takes to be a small time landlord is just approaching the, the issue of housing from a slightly different angle. And it's, it can be like, you, you think of it as an investment, but it's also putting a roof over your head, reducing your costs every month. I mean, it's got that it's killer. double whammy going. It's, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, so Chad, like, what is it right now that you're looking uh, that you're looking for? Like when, when you're looking for a property, what are the factors that you're considering? Like, is it all about the numbers or other considerations that, that you're keeping in mind? Yeah, I learned early on, I used to think it was all about the numbers and the numbers are important. Like, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about just some basic ways to run the numbers, but I now that I've matured a little bit, I've realized that there's it's sort of like a two two sides of a coin. Like you, every a good deal, it has to have some numbers that make sense. So cash flow is a certain type of analysis you can do. You want a certain amount of cash flow or you want it to cover your mortgage and then have a certain amount of money over that mortgage. But you also want to have a certain type of location because you know, the money you make in real estate is sort of the consequence, it's the outcome. But the the cause of that, like the, the core principle of real estate investing is providing housing for someone. So someone's going to live there. Like, and so the, be, the the location they live in, the type of property they live in, like those are so critical. And I, I had a mentor early in my career who told me, he said, Chad, you always want to buy properties that have some sort of romance to them. And I was like, romance? Like, what do you, what do you mean romance? Like, what, 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 are you, what are you talking about? And his point was like, real estate is an emotional either a purchase or if you're renting a property, it's still, it's an emotional thing. Like you're living there for an emotional reason. And yes, you have to have a roof over your head, but if you if you don't have a property that has some sort of romance to it, meaning, and it could be something simple. It could be like, you know, you guys, I, I resonate with you that we like walkable locations. Like we like a place with a yeah. sidewalk and, you know, big trees and you can walk to a local coffee shop. Like that, that's romance. Like that, that idea for someone that they could walk somewhere for a certain type of person, that's romance. For another yeah. type of person, it might mean, hey, I want to live close to my, where I work but I want to live out with a two acre parcel in the country. And that's like, that's my idea of romance. The, but the, the, the principle is the same is that you need to buy your properties with that in mind, like number one. And if you do that, like if you buy properties that are, are in demand because there's an emotional attraction to them for some reason, then you, the, the money stuff will, will take care of itself. Just for example, I have a single family house that we used to live in. And every time I put it on the market to rent, I put it on Zillow. And within a week, I have at least five, sometimes 10 applications from people who want to rent the property. And this is at market rent. I'm not like, I'm not, you know, not putting it way below market rent, like just a little bit below market rent. And I get to choose like the best, most qualified tenant and they mm -hmm. tend to stay and they tend to stay a long time as well. And why is that? That That is because that property has romance. That property is in a neighborhood that's attractive. It's close to things that people want to be at. And so like that principle is something I missed early in my career. I bought some properties with good numbers on paper, but they were in the wrong location. They And so you need to, 
to control the things you can control, which is where the property is. You can't move that house, at least can't do it easily. So you want to you, you want to you want to pick a good location first, and then yes, learn how to run the numbers, make sure the financing works, make sure the we can talk about that too. But I I think if you get that idea of location and then a good property that has a good layout, you'll you'll a lot of the other stuff will take care of itself. Well, that can also reduce the hassle, right? Hassle factor, which is one of the biggest reasons that people say, "Yeah, real estate. I don't think it's. I don't think that's for me." And I think also uh, location can matter, not just in the the monthly cash flow, but also when it comes to appreciation of that property. Yes. But uh, talk to me about passive income, Chad. I feel like it's it's sold one way on the internet. Passive income is like a, a buzzword that people use to, to get people to follow them and <laughs> try to yeah. talk to them about, hey, here's how you can like generate thousands of dollars a month in passive income. It's so easy. Follow me. But real estate is, sure, it, you can get, get passive income over time, but you're also talking about a part-time job, right? Yeah, it, it is a part-time job, especially early on. I mentioned earlier, it starts off like a startup company, like a you know little venture capital startup company. So it's going to take some time and effort up front. And I, I call that like your psychological down payment. Like if, if you're not willing to like put that effort and that time in up front, real estate's not your thing. And that's fine. There's other options. There's index funds. I, and sometimes it's just the practical reason. If you have a job that is taking like 60 hours of your week and any and having an hour of mental energy on some other venture would like tip you over the edge, like you, you don't need to do real estate like that. You don't you, have time you, for it. Yeah, you don't have time. That's cool. Like there's, and maybe you will next year, maybe you will another time in your life. It, it requires some effort up front. And you either need to spend time on negotiating properties, on running the numbers, on finding good locations, on building a team. Like that's where you're going to spend your time up front now but the the thing is like i mentioned earlier is that it it eventually becomes passive though and real estate's pretty cool in that way is that you you put that psychological down payment you put that financial down payment and then you stabilize that property you get a good tenant I, i've had tenants who stay for 10 years or more in some properties and when, when that happens the like dream it's the dream, <laughs> yeah, the it, dream. <laughs> it doesn't happen every day but like it happens and and if it does i like, think about how little work you have to do on a, on a, a, a property if there's no turnover, if they're yeah. not moving. Yes, if something breaks, you have to fix it. But you, I, when I was in Spain, I would have something break, even the properties I was self-managed, and my tenant had a plumber's phone number. They could call the plumber. Like they could say, hey, here's my plumber. I really like this plumber. Call them. I'll pay for it. But go ahead and call them if it's a problem. And if it's you know if they if that gets out of whack and they're spending money too much money, I can try to you know change that policy. But it doesn't have to be <laughs> it doesn't have to be a really huge time suck. And you can do it from anywhere in the world as long as you have a cell phone. And so that's where the end game of real estate is that it can be very passive. But it also that, that key word that I mentioned earlier is also recurring. This recurring income it's, it's a lot like your salary. And so like you you used you get used to having that monthly salary, and that's a nice thing to have. And real estate can replace that. It can be very much like that. I like that. I've, I've never given uh, my tenants the number of the plumber before, but that's a little trick. I might have to, I might have to yeah. steal from you. But I realize until, they, until you get a bill and you realize that like they had them install like a bidet or something. And you're like, what the? <laughs> I, I, I remember being like six hours away one time and there was a water issue at, at, at one of my rentals. And I was like, usually I'm used to going, I was used to going over there when there was an issue just to scope it out, get a lay of land. And that was the first time I realized I just called the plumber. He took care of it because I was still out of town and the, the, the no light went to, off in my no brain. To go over there. <laughs> I, I don't even know that I ever have to go over there again, which is kind of crazy. Um, it, it, I mean, I still like to go check on it, see it once or twice a year kind of thing. But like, it's one of those things where I, over time I've been able to become less and less active. And I just remember that being this like, aha, wow. Oh my gosh. I didn't realize that I didn't have to be this complete active participant all the time in the property. 
Exactly. You know, that's that's the benefit that some people who invest long distance have over those of us who started local is that you have to treat it as a business from the very beginning. Like you, if you're in San Francisco and you're buying a property in Georgia, like you, you can't go look at it. Sorry, like it's not going to happen. Yeah. And so it forces you to think like a business owner as opposed to and there's nothing wrong with going to the property and checking it out. Like I'm, I'm all for that, especially when you're learning, especially when you're growing, especially when you're trying to save money. Like that's cool. Like there's nothing wrong with it. But eventually, like I think this is what I wrote about in the book about I have a whole chapter on systems like that. There's a you should think kind of like Henry Ford did when he built the Model T and built the assembly line like that for him him, the process of building a, a car became the thing that he worked on. It became the thing he tinkered with. And you as a real estate investor should think about your business as this is like a kind of like a machine, kind of like an engine, and you have to tinker with it. And you are the you're you're not just working in your business, you're actually working on your business, trying to create systems and processes and building a team. And if you do that, that's where the good stuff happens on the other end. That's where you can have the benefit of the income. And yes, you're gonna have to pay somebody to manage it sometimes, you're gonna have to pay a plumber who might charge more than you. But you, if you treat it like a business, you run the numbers so that you can pay people to do those things for you. And your profit as the owner of that business is what's left over after you pay all those other people to do those things. It also just comes down to, to what it is that you're optimizing for. Like we kind of touched on that there earlier, but like it makes me think about, you said you, you, you've had tenants that have been around for 10 years. And I'm guessing you were less likely to raise the rent dramatically on that tenant because if they were a good tenant, you probably wanted to keep them in there. Now, were you optimizing for the amount of cash flow that you had by doing that? No, probably no. not. But you were optimizing for what it is that you were seeking. This, this is like the whole like building wealth versus achieving some sense of freedom uh, that, that you talk about. But is that true? It is true. Yeah, when well, somebody's been there yeah. ten years, I mean, it's it's automatically below the market. And that's not to say we don't raise the rents. Like we we do raise it some. But for I'll give you a, a practical example. I've got a property where the tenant was willing to renew, or I sent a, I sent an email or a text saying, "Hey, we'd like to renew. the The market rent right now is eighteen dollars per month or maybe it's two market rents two thousand dollars per month they were paying like fifteen hundred and fifty dollars per month like this the rents had gone really up really fast and we said we, we need to raise the rent some our insurance is going up okay, maintenance expenses are going up but we don't want to we're not going to raise it up to the market level we need to raise it by 50 bucks per month and and so that's the kind of you know you're they're still getting a better deal than they could if they had to move somewhere else. But we're mm -hmm. covering we're covering our costs. But I, I know landlords who don't ever raise the rents at all, and that's that's you know this, that's your choice, and that that's a different choice than like if you were an institutional landlord, which you guys know I'm kind of like hot on trying to say how small and mighty investors I think are much better for communities than these big institutional Wall Street landlords. They, we're with you on that too, yeah. yeah <laughs> their their job is to to maximize their return for their investors, and they're gonna they're gonna push the rent to market as much as they can over and yeah. over. Again. Often and, at the yeah. expense of the tenant. Exactly. Yes. And so I, I feel like it's not the, the landlord tenant relationship is often put as an adversarial relationship. But I, I very, very rarely felt that from with my tenants. Like I felt like I'm providing value to them, giving them a nice home that we care about and we have pride in. We're not gonna we're not we're not slumming the, that property out. We want to treat it well, we want to treat the tenant well. And they're in return, they're paying rent and they're they're maintaining the house as if it was their own. They're taking care of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I during COVID was one of the biggest aha moments for me was like I read in the newspapers on Wall Street Journal and all this about how so many tenants weren't paying and how many how adversarial the landlord tenant relationship was 99.9% .9 of our tenants 
were still paying on time. A couple of them had issues and we worked it out. They took care of the properties. Like they appreciated having a home to live in and I appreciated yeah. them. And it was, I had never been so grateful in my life for our tenants. And I hope, I hope they were also grateful for the home they had because it's a, it's a mutually beneficial relationship. It didn't have to be something that we're beating each other, other up, up about. Yeah, man, I had I similar it. similar experiences. Let's talk about debt and financing for a second, Chad. I mean, rising interest rates, of course, we've been talking about those over the past, you know, 18 months or whatever. But how have those changed your advice to want to be real estate investors? Have have rising rates maybe tamped down your enthusiasm for small, mighty real estate investing? It's just changed the approach. It's changed the technique. And the way I compare it, the last, you know, we're here in 2023 when we did this interview, you know, 2018 through 2022, and even before that, this has been an unusual time historically in terms of interest rates, in terms of real estate investing, where you could actually go out and get a two or 3% mortgage, pay retail price almost for a house and have it cash flow. Like that, I just want to get like put it in perspective. Like that is unusual. Like that's not yeah. that's not the normal thing. That's not to say that it wasn't good. Like good for us. Like great, you got to take advantage. But the way we real estate investors, we always have to pivot. We always have to change. We always have to adapt to the market. And I, I'm going to break the real estate investing into two like pieces. Like one piece is not changed at all. I don't care what the interest rates are. The fundamentals of those good locations that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. The fundamentals of finding good tenants. The fundamentals of maintenance. The, like those things are the same. The challenge. The other piece that we have to look at now is the cost of buying a property with a traditional financing mortgage has gone from three or 4% up to like 7%. And what that does is that makes the cost of using debt much more expensive, at least going to the bank and using debt. So how, how do we solve that? Like, well, one way is you can put more money down to make, because because your cash flow is not uh, working as well with a small down payment. You, you might have to figure out a way to either go in with a partner or save up more money. Maybe you have to slow down a little bit buy fewer properties and right. you know I, I've told people like if you've already owned a few properties and you're and you have enough money to even pay cash for a property you know you're essentially getting a seven percent return instead of paying mm-hmm. the bank seven percent if you were in that kind of later stage of your career where you're like ah, I don't know that I want to pay the three percent debt off but I could like pay cash for a new property or put 50 percent down or something the, the cash flow can work when you make a bigger down payment and I'm not saying like that's what everybody should do but like that's one that's option a like you could you, you can make it cash flow by putting a larger down payment. Option B is like getting creative with your financing. And I, I the way I explain this is like you, you can look at your financing like a toolbox. And if you're building a house, you'd have like five or six or 10 tools in your toolbox or more, right? Well, when, you, when you're financing houses, you don't want to just have one hammer. Like that's what traditional financing is. I just got a hammer. I'm just going to use the hammer over and over and over again. Well, no, like why wouldn't you use like a screwdriver and a saw and these other tools? And what those other tools are, are thinking outside the box, like talking to the seller and seeing if the seller will finance the property for you. It's called, mm-hmm. it's called seller financing. It's not common. It's not typical when you go through a real estate agent that you know, the seller's just going to say, yes, I'd love to finance the property to you. Like, no, it's a, it's a little different approach. You might have to reach out directly to the seller. You might have to look for landlords or people who are more predisposed to finance properties to you. Like the, the ideal person to finance a property is a landlord who's owned a property for like 15, 20, 30 years, and they're kind of tired of the landlording business and they're ready to, to exit, but they like that recurring income. Remember that that monthly income, they've gotten used mm-hmm. to that. But they're they, addicted but, to 
to it. Like, <laughs> hey, hey I'm, I'm addicted as well. Like I get it. Yeah. Um, but then they don't want to manage the day-to-day -day affairs. Maybe they're getting up in years. And so them financing to you might be the perfect solution for them. Like that's the way they can exit the property. And so that's, that's like another, that's one tool in your toolbox. You could also use private money. Like I, the number one way I finance my deals over the years is going to other investors and they would have a, like a self-directed retirement account or they would set up a retirement account that had money that they could actually loan to me as a real estate investor. And that's not something a lot of people know about, but if you have uh, your own IRA that you can choose where, it, where it's at, or if you have a 401k, an old employer, for example, there's some flexibility on the custodians you can put that with. And so my that strategy for me was I had a, a professor, old professor at Clemson University, and he, did, he had a lot of money in a retirement account, and he had some of it in the stock market, but I taught him how, hey, you could like loan me that 100,000 bucks, and I can pay you 7% interest, or 10% interest, or six whatever the interest rate you, you negotiate. And so you can, show other people how they can be your bank, basically, be your private bank, or you can meet other investors at local meetups who are who would like to do that. They like to get interest. And so those are just a couple of examples. But the point is, like, if you think outside the box, this is what real estate investors have had to do for decades. You're going to have to hustle a little bit. You're going to have to think outside the box a little bit and learn a few different techniques yeah. to make it work. Yeah, again, it comes back to how willing are you to do the things that other folks aren't necessarily willing to do. How, sure. how You got to be willing to do things slightly uh, unconventionally uh, in order to yeah, yes. get the deal. All right, we want to talk about deleveraging as well. That's kind of part of shoring up your real estate portfolio. We'll talk about that. And then just kind of like how to get started maybe as well. We'll, we'll get to a couple more questions with Chad right after this. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. They are committed to high ethical standards and even had to pass a rigorous exam before they could become a CFP professional. They offer financial planning and services that take a more comprehensive view of your financial and personal circumstances and are customized for your needs. Certified financial planner professionals can offer advice on a wide range of issues like reviewing your investment portfolio's allocation, handling an inheritance, rolling over a company retirement plan, building education savings, and so much more. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simons on the calendar. Pump for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com host. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best fit prospects through campaign optimization. 
Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no-obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. All right, we are back from the break talking still with Chad Carson about how you can be a small and mighty real estate investor. And Chad Joel, he kind of hinted at, alluded to this right before the break, but deleveraging. When and how should folks out there pay down debt on a rental property? Because like you said earlier as well, this is, it kind of goes against the traditional advice, the traditional approach of most real estate investors. You want to hang on to that leverage as long as possible, but you've actually, you have done that before. You pay down debt, but you've also sold properties. Can you talk about when and why you would do that? Yeah, I think about your real estate investing as a journey, essentially. So like think of, you know, I mentioned the, the mountain metaphor. Like when you first start as a new investor, you're sort of at the bottom of the mountain and you're going to use certain techniques and strategies when you're new. Like you, you probably don't have a lot of capital, you need more money. And so you just try to, you try to use as much debt as you can early on. Like if you you did a house hack and put 5% down on a property, like awesome. Like that's what that's what you should do early on because you just got to get your foot in the game. So, th but that's, that's the approach of a starter. And then you move out of the starter phase into what I call like the wealth builder phase. And your whole goal as a wealth builder is turning whatever capital, whatever money, whatever wealth you have, let's say you have a hundred thousand bucks, turn that hundred thousand bucks into a million bucks. Like your, your, your goal is to grow, 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 grow. And you wanna do it safely, right? You wanna get up that mountain and using leverage makes a lot of sense in that case as well. So you, you, might, you might reinvest all the cash you make from, a, from your rental, like don't touch that money, put it back into buying the next rental property and the next rental property. So that's like, those are the two first two stages. But I, I feel like most real estate investors get stuck in phase number two, like all the techniques are talking about just grow, 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 grow. It's like, well, do you just grow forever? Or like, do you get into this perpetual debt religion and like never pay debt off? Like, you know, what, what happens? And what most people assume, going back to like the, the typical model, is you just buy more properties, buy more properties, buy more properties. And what I advocate is like, when you finally get to this point where you have, like you, you can measure your wealth, and you say, let's just say you had a, a million dollars, then why not start taking some of those chips off the table by plowing back some of the, the profits you have, either the cash flow from your rentals, or you could even like, let's say you bought 13 properties and you only needed 10, like why not sell a couple of your properties, pay taxes on what you sold the property for, and then plow that money back into paying off the debt on a couple of properties. Now stick with me, if you've never heard somebody say you should do this, like I, my business partner and I sort of stumbled into this, but we, we, had a, we were lucky enough to have like 100,000 bucks in our bank account. We're like, I've never had this happen before, this is amazing. Like, <laughs> like, where, where did this money come from? It was because we had been saving our cash flow, we sold a property and this money was sitting there and we looked at one of our debts, it was an older debt that we'd been paying for like 10 years, it was $1,000 per month and the property had appreciated to like 250, 300,000 bucks. And so we had a lot of equity in the property and, but we looked at that payment, we're like, we could spend 100,000 bucks and go buy four more rental properties and keep growing, or we could pay off this debt and free up $1,000 per month. $1,000 per month is $12,000 per year, 
And what would we do there? We'd have $12,000 per year in cash flow. And that's like a, you could think about that as like a 12% cash on cash return. We would not have to grow anymore. So we wouldn't have any more properties with more tenants and more headaches and more, you know, heating and air units. And we would simplify our life. We'd increase our cash flow. And we'd also decrease our risk because having debt is great. It's a great tool to, for growing. But if things go badly, if you get in a big recession, if you have a great, you know, depression like we had in the 1930s, having debt could really put you upside down. Like you could owe, yeah. you could owe less, you could owe more than what the property's worth. The rents could go down. I mean, that doesn't happen. It's probably not going to happen. Like I don't think it's going to happen. But just when you start getting towards the top of the mountain when you're climbing, it makes more sense to like thinking about not just growing, also thinking about income, also thinking about simplicity. So I feel like that's the stage where it makes sense to start paying off debt. Now, whether you pay off 100% of your debt or you pay off like a few properties, you know, we we've kind of gone through that over the. We still have some debt on our portfolio, but instead of having like 60, 70 percent of our value of our portfolio in debt, we have more like 15% or 20% right now. And eventually we'll be at 0%. But like, we're, we're feeling pretty good about where we are right now. Yeah, you're sitting pretty. And even if let's say that there were some predictions of like another 2008 sort of housing recession, I don't see that on the horizon. But if housing prices dip, like, and you're over leveraged, and your tenant isn't paying or whatever, like, that puts you in a in a bind. And you're not in that bind, right? Even if your your tenant or multiple tenants don't pay, you're you're still fine. And so there's like a mental ease that that creates, I think. Yeah. Uh, what would you say, Chad, to the folks maybe who've made it this far into the conversation? They, they're maybe fascinated by the wealth building possibilities of real estate, but they're also hesitant to get going because it it seems risky. It sounds risky. Like, I don't know, maybe I should just keep tossing money into my 401k. And again, we talk about that all the time. We're totally down. Get the match. Like, don't forsake that. Real estate investing should should be after you've done that, at least. But what would you say to somebody who's like, I don't think that's for me, but it's not necessarily because I don't have the time or don't have the desire. It's just it it sounds like it's too much. Yeah, I would say just take it one step at a time. Like you, you don't have to be, you don't have to make a forever decision with real estate investing. You can test it out. You can buy one property and that might be enough. Like you might just buy one property, take a break for a year or two, let it season, take a deep breath, see if that was a good decision or not. And then you can do another one after that. And I actually have a, a mentor named John Schaub, who's, who's a guy I've followed for a long time. He's been investing in real estate for 50 years. He wrote a, his, his book that I always loved was called Building Wealth, one house at a time, just one house. Like he just recommends buying one house a year, one property a year. And if you do that, like if you just continue buying, just like the tortoise, not the hare, just plodding along, plodding along, it seems pretty small in the beginning. It seems like you're not making much progress, but that can build an enormous momentum. And but it also, if you if you may, you think it's a mistake, if you get into the game, you're like, eh, I bought a property or two. I'm, this is not for me you can sell the properties or you can get out of them. It's not gonna happen overnight. Real estate isn't as easy to sell as a piece of stock, but if you buy it correctly and you don't overstretch yourself and you, you're careful with it, it's not gonna be a disastrous decision. Like going slowly, thinking about it, being deliberate, allows you to kind of get your feet back under you again. And, and you can pivot, you can change, but I have a hunch, like if you thought you had it, if you kind of liked real estate and you got into it, you might you might just get addicted to it like I have, like Joel and Matt, Matt has, because <laughs> it's got it's got a lot of good stuff to it as well. And the, some of the negative stuff you hear up front is it, it talks people out of real estate, but real estate over the long run can have so many benefits and I'm experiencing those now. And one of the reasons I get out on podcasts and appreciate you guys having me is because I like to talk about it. I like to talk about the good sides of it and how if you get through the, the, the tough stuff up front, 
the other side of that can be an amazing change in your life. It gives you freedom. It gives you flexibility. And I, I, I've experienced that myself. It, it takes a while. There's like a lot of stuff you need to learn when you're thinking about becoming a real estate investor. One thing Matt and I, we've done a whole episode on screening tenants properly because we yeah. think that is like 90% of yeah. the issues that you're going to face are not having screened a tenant thoroughly. And so if you do that, you're way ahead of the ball game. You're going to deal with far fewer of the issues that a whole uh, a lot of other landlords have to endure. But I love what you said too, one house at a time. That's a great strategy. It makes me think of like a, an athlete post game saying, I'm just taking one game at a time. <laughs> and sometimes that just, and you know, Chad, you know, this you probably gave those interviews at, at post, I did. I did. post football game, right? I did, yes. <laughs> you, you have to say that, but the truth is, when you take it one house at a time, one game at a time, when your focus is just on the next step, you're much more likely to be successful than thinking about this bigger overarching goal you're looking to achieve over time. It's like you you got to take it one play at a time, one game at a time, one house at a time. That's how you're going to be successful. Yeah, you open up the sports metaphor, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go there as well, real quick. Oh, bring it, but, yeah, come bring on. It. So, so like one of my favorite uh, coaches in sports is a guy named John Wooden. He was a basketball coach at UCLA, and he used to bring his all like he had the best players in the country. He had like Bill Walton, who's a Hall of Famer. He had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and he would bring these players in before the season started, and he would spend a whole day, like or two hours, sitting in a room practicing, putting on their socks and tying their shoes. Literally, wow. like they, they would have them tying the shoes. And so you, you just imagine this all 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 American. How frustrating would it be? Like, why am I doing this, coach? <laughs> like, you, I put my shoes on like ten times. Like, what is this? And he would get them frustrated. And he would say, "You know why we're doing this? Is because if this is something we can control. This is a part of the process of being a good basketball player. It's a tiny little piece, tiny little step. But if you if you don't if you have a wrinkle in your sock or if you tie your shoe wrong, you're probably going to get a blister. If you get a blister, you're going to miss practice. If you miss practice, we're not going to play well in the game. And if we don't play well in the game, we're we're not going to win a championship or we're not going to do all those things that you want to do. And real estate investing is the same way. The, the little tiny baby steps are what matters. So tenant screening, yeah. I'm 100% on board. Like if you're going to own properties, you got to learn how to te- screen your tenants. You got to learn how to have an application. You got to learn how to have those conversations. Like the little tiny, what seem like tiny steps, they matter a lot. And in real estate, the part of the upfront cost of real estate is learning what matters and what doesn't and what you know, location matters. I mentioned that earlier, screening tenants matters and there's a bunch of other stuff in that matter that matter too but like if you get the financing matters and so if you if you figure out like the three four five things that really matter the most and you put your socks on you put your you tie your shoes well and you do it consistently one deal at a time it the, the end result of that is a equivalent of a championship like you will do better and that's you'll be right. you'll be kind of surprised by it like you that's the, the the big athletes i've seen athletes who are putting for like the winning the british open and they're kind of surprised by it. like whoa wait a minute like what i just won the british open it's because <laughs> because they were like paying attention to their putt they're paying attention to the process yeah. that's that's what an athlete does that's what a real estate investor does as well yeah it almost surprises you that you've done well but it's, it's no surprise, actually, because yeah. you've taken all the right steps all, all along the way. It's why we love your approach, Chad. Where is it that folks out there can, can find your new book and uh, how can folks learn more about what it is that you've got going on? Yeah, well, thank you again for having me, guys. And the, the book is out on Bigger Pockets. That's my publisher. It's a big uh, publishing website and real estate investing website. But you, well, I know we'll have links in the show notes in different places. But if you go to biggerpockets.com forward slash small and mighty, that is where you can get it. Get it. It'll also be available the 22nd of August on Amazon. 
Amazon, on Audible. So anywhere else you get your books. Uh, Bigger Pockets is a pretty cool place to get it because I, I have actually wrote some extra bonuses. Like I wrote a bonus chapter about being a small and mighty investor in a changing economy, talking about these rising interest rates and different the way things yeah. are changing. How do you how do you adjust? So some of what we talked about today. Wherever you get the book, I would I would love it. I'd love to hear from you once you buy the book and read it. You know, I'm 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 all over the place uh, online. If you just search for Coach Carson on Instagram, on other places, on my podcast, like I'm I'm out there. Just search for Coach Carson and, and let me know that you liked it. Let me know that uh, any feedback you have because I, I love that's I wrote this book as a passion project. Like this was a an itch I had in my mm-hmm. head, and I I, I want to see tons and tons of people buy their pro- that one property, that two properties, and have success with it. And my my reward for that is like getting to hear your stories. Yeah, that's great. Also, well, I'm, I'm imagining a lot of How to Money listeners are very interested in that, given kind of the what we've talked about with real estate over the years, and and this book really is the one, the one to get for sure in our minds if if you're looking to get into real estate or if you're just curious. So, uh, Chad, thanks again so much for joining us uh, today on the show, man. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's been been a lot of fun. Thank you, guys. All right, man. It's always a good day if we can sit down and talk with our bud, Chad Carson. Almost makes it feel not like work because it really doesn't. Yeah, dude. We're so fortunate to be able to do what it is we do. I mean, like True. literally to be drinking craft beer, talking about money, talking about real estate, talking with friends as well. Yeah, we've got a good made in the uh, shade. I'm incredibly fortunate for what it is that we do here at How to Money, but specifically to real estate, the small and mighty real estate investor. What is it uh, today that stood out to you? What was your big takeaway? Yeah, so. I love kind of the beginning of the episode where we're talking about how to work backwards from the life you want. And that's so powerful because if you don't know that, you might be tempted to overindulge, to go so hard and then look up after that nose to the grindstone real estate portfolio building escapade you've been on and be like, huh, why? Why did I do that? Because now I'm so locked in. I'm working way more than I want to. And yeah, granted, I have this awesome real estate portfolio to show for it, but I've missed out on a lot of the important things along the way. And so I think, Chad, we just jive so much on all of those levels when it comes to lifestyle and what is it that we're pursuing, keeping the end in mind. It's possible to overdo it. Yeah, it's possible to overdo it and to be too financially savvy with the different moves that you're making. Yeah. And starting with the end goal in mind is so important. I, I completely agree with you. And so my big takeaway is going to be when we kind of touched on interest rates, mortgage interest rates, and how I, I think the natural tendency might be for individuals to find themselves attracted to more and more properties that may not necessarily fit the bill. Uh, they might be looking further out or neighborhoods that aren't quite as promising. And it's in order to achieve the numbers that we were able to find five, 10 years ago, right? And Chad, he specifically, at some point, I forget what it is that we even asked him about, but he was talking about the romance of a location mm-hmm. and how you can't discount that. You can't calculate that on paper, but it's something that you feel, it's something that you see, and you can kind of write down and be like, oh, well, it's got, it's walkable, or oh, it's close to this park, or it's close to this brewery, oh, it's got a front porch, different things that you know to certain individuals might appeal to them, but don't, yeah. don't discount those things, because again, you might be looking at, if you are a real estate investor, you might be looking at some of these other properties that on paper, okay, this should make sense. Uh, but you have to look beyond you know, capitalization rate. You, you have to look beyond, can I pull in uh, 1% of the purchase price of this home? It's not just about the numbers. You got to take all those other things yeah. into account as well. No, I mean, it, it makes me think, my question, the question I've always asked when I'm buying a property is, would I live in this place? And would I be happy to live here? Mm-hmm. And so if, if the answer to that is no, then I'm not interested, right? If I'm, it, whether it's based on location, based on like the yard, based on the way the home looks, I 
want it to be like cute and and just if it doesn't have all those factors and if I wouldn't be willing to live in it myself or at least 25 26 year old Joel wouldn't be willing to live in yeah. it then I'm not interested it makes it tougher to list that property and really believe in it exactly yeah, yeah if yeah. I love the location if I love the neighborhood and I hey it's the disc golf course is right around the corner my favorite brewery is right over here then I, when I'm talking to tenants that that enthusiasm comes through mm-hmm. and I think especially if they don't know about the neighborhood now they know right I'm exactly. almost like a tour guide of my neighborhood sometimes yeah oh absolutely when i'm telling well, people that's a big about part it. of touting the different benefits of, sure. of that specific property but uh all right well let's uh shift to the beer during this episode we enjoyed a zeros to heaven this is a west coast ipa by so apropos casa agria <laughs> casa that means house so look at you you're fancy spanish chad would be so proud he would be his um, wife would be too who's a spanish teacher what uh yeah did you like this beer i did i did so th- i'm not usually a west coast ipa guy like it, this I, wasn't super west coasty but it wasn't yeah, yeah. It, it was really interesting it wasn't i feel like a lot of west coast ipas they're bitter to the max but this one was clean yeah it had those piney notes but it wasn't it wasn't over the top pithy bitterness and so this one was like a, a balanced west coast and i mean super, super juicy not overly sweet but super juicy it had some of these other notes going on versus just sort of the harsh bitterness yeah. that you that you can expect uh oftentimes with west coast ipas but yeah totally agree very drinkable glad you and i got to enjoy this one here on the show from one of the best breweries on the west coast it's a good one uh we'll make sure to link to where it is that you can find chad's book up on the website at howtomoney.com that's going to be it buddy for this one until next time best friends out best friends out Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.